0: Last informational type deal. Uh, Those of you that have been around a while know that we've been working on purchasing a building. We're in the final weeks of that purchase, so we close on the building on June 15th. The building is on the corner of 7th and Wallace. It's a brick building on the north side of Wallace there and on 7th. And a couple weeks ago, I just kind of came before the church and said, you know, it really isn't our style or our DNA to run some sort of massive capital campaign to twist people's arms to give. But what we do wanna do is come before the church and say, hey, this is sort of our house. It's the Lord's house. It's our house that we get to move into together. And would you at least go before the Lord and ask if he would place it upon your heart to contribute towards the building? Um, So right now, we're looking at raising the funds to do the construction on the building. We've got the financing all secured and everything's in place. And honestly, the last six months, the Lord has just opened one door after another to make this whole thing possible. It was actually really cool. I, had, I ran into the mayor the other day, and he said, so you guys got that building on 7th and Wallace? And I said, yeah. And uh, he said, uh, interesting thing. He's like, I had heard that you guys were going after that property, and I know that there was the potential of some, uh, some people in the neighborhood coming kind of against the project. And so I had kind of kept in my back pocket um, there, there's some stipulations within the, the local government that uh, rules and regulations that would have allowed the church to have secure the space no matter what. And he said, I was just kind of waiting to see if there were any naysayers or anybody that would try to shut it down because there would have been a last option to sort of throw our hat in the ring and make it happen no matter what, which I just thought was kind of cool that the Lord um, was like even moving in the mayor and had him prepare that for us. So that was cool. So It really is our hope that this place becomes more than a place that we gather on Sunday mornings. It is not our heart to just find a church building. It's our heart to find a place that blesses the neighborhood and becomes a resource to the city. And so we're prayerfully considering how that looks. And so if you guys would just partner with us in praying through this and also just going before the Lord, like it's his building to buy. And I'm just believing that he's gonna place it on the right people's hearts at the right time to make that happen. And so anyhow, it is our desire to have the thing paid off within like five years so that it's not um, a burden on the church for too long. And um, so we're just seeking him about that. So let's pray. Let's lift that up before the Lord. And then um let's lift our time up this morning to him and then we'll dive into matthew 14. jesus i just thank you for your church i thank you for the work that you're doing here i thank you for those who have recently come to know you and what a privilege it is to um see you just sort of fan that flame in their lives um god we thank you for the doors that you've opened with this church building um lord i i really do think we see in part but you see the whole picture and God, who knows what it is you have in store in and through that piece of property in downtown Coeur but I pray that it would just ooze Jesus, that it would be a beacon of light in a place that would bring restoration to hundreds of hearts in our community. Um, Jesus, we thank you for all the doors you've opened thus far, and I pray you'd go before us and provide the way. Lord, we know that, where you lead, you provide. And so we trust you 100% with this, Jesus. Uh, lift up this time before you this morning and as we open up your word, um, we don't do this, Lord, in as a platitude. We do this because we believe that in worship and in studying your word that we actually get to interact with the living God. And so I pray that your word Would speak to us. It would encourage and challenge and convict. If it needs God, that you would move through the people in this room. You have them here for a reason, a specific purpose today. And so I pray you'd use your word to impart something into our lives as we listen to you this morning, Jesus, in your name, Amen. Are you guys okay? I I need you to be a little bit more lively, okay? Um. So we're going to continue on Matthew 14. So if you guys would turn to Matthew 14, we're going to be in uh, verses 22 to 36. This morning, and this is another big story. Last week we talked about Jesus feeding the five thousand. I said that the, 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 the five thousand only represented women, and so are men, so including women and children, we probably are looking at more like fifteen to twenty thousand people that Jesus fed through that massive miraculous act of feeding them last week that we studied and today we're in another big story another story that if you grew up in the church you've heard this you probably know this like the back of your hand you've probably heard it preached a thousand different ways this morning and so we're going to open up and simply talk through what Jesus was doing in this act in coming before his disciples upon the sea walking on the water and calling Peter out of the boat to follow after him but as I read through this passage this week there are a few themes in it that sort of popped out to me, and I think uh, these themes sort of connect with our lives in real time today as we walk this walk of faith. And so those of you that are here this morning who know who know the Lord, who have been walking out your faith and sort of living life as a follower of Jesus, there are some themes that you see in this passage that I think will connect with you, and the first one is this, this whole theme of fear that we'll get into, and, and things that we fear, and, and the fact that God is calling us to not be afraid. Um, to calling us to not be afraid in our walk with Him right here and right now, and then you also see this theme of risk, where Peter gets out of the boat and he steps on water. And we're going to see in this passage this morning that Jesus is asking, in fact, He's commanding Peter to take a big, of, a bit of a risk in his life to step out of the boat. And as I think about yours and I's lives, these two things are the factors bar none, that we try to minimize the most in our lives. We try to minimize fear, and we try to minimize risk in our lives. We do not like it as humans. That just makes us nervous. And so we do whatever we can to minimize these two things that Jesus is actually asking his disciples to not fear and to take risk. And uh, one of the benefits of of living in sort of our, our modern world is that by and large, we have, generally risk-free existence, to be honest. If you've traveled anywhere else in the world, you see way more risk, way more um, opportunity for, for failure like across the world. But in the United States, we live in this weird bubble where we've tried to minimize risk on every end. Those of you that are like maybe over 40, do you remember days when people didn't wear bike helmets? Like, nobody wore bike helmets when I was growing up. Now when you ride around, everybody has bike helmets on. And so I'm not telling you parent, or you kids, like you don't have to wear bike helmets. What I'm saying is, that used to never be a thing. And so why did bike helmets come into existence? To try to minimize the risk of people getting head injuries. Like it's a great thing, but we have seat belts, we have handrails, like go down the list of all these sorts of things that lead us to believe that we're generally not in very much risk. We don't have very much risk in our lives. And so these are good things, and I think all of us are glad that helmets exist, right? And that seatbelts exist, and the handrails, all these things that actually are good. We're thankful for these precautions that our society has taken. But it's interesting that at times, when we pursue a lack of risk in our life, when we're always trying to minimize the risk, the outcome can be things that we never actually intended. In fact, they can lead to outcomes that are actually more negative. There's a story that that I wanted to share with you guys. I've talked before about the fact that I love watching documentaries and docu-series and reading on history and whatnot. And there's this one series, um, I know you'll like this Tyler, but um, there's this one series about plane crashes. Have you guys ever watched this? It's It's like a series that just documents the history of plane wrecks and why they happen. It's like fascinating. So when I'm laying in bed at night and I can't sleep, I'm like, ah, I wanna watch the documentary. How do planes crash? Like, let's watch that, you know? And so I watched this thing, and and, and then this one that they highlighted sort of got me interested, which made me start reading about this flight. Um, Some of you remember this, but in light of this text um, and and this idea of lowering our risk, I want you to just hear this story for a second. So it's a story about a flight Air France, flight 447, left from Rio de Janeiro, May 31st, 2009. Like 228 people, I think, were on this plane. The plane took off, everything was fine, the plane got to uh, the proper altitude, everything seemed okay, and then all of a sudden, the plane just goes off the radar and it disappears. A Couple days later, they find the wreckage from the plane, like in the Atlantic Sea, um, and they spent like two years, I think it was, searching for the black box for the the plane and it was two years later 2011 i think is when they found the black box and it was interesting like again like all 228 people lose their lives on this plane it's devastating um, but the air traffic control couldn't figure out what had actually happened until they recovered this black box And so when they recovered the black box and they figured out what happened, the story's interesting because something that was designed to actually make the plane more safe actually brought the plane into greater risk. And it was these automated systems that are on the plane, like autopilot, we all know what this is. And the story that's told is that the, the automated systems actually shut off because there were these probes on the nose of the plane that froze over and ice got on them, and so the automated system shut off without the pilots actually knowing. The problem is that the, the pilots weren't in the practice of flying the plane manually because they were so used to flying the planes in autopilot. And so nowadays, uh, um, you know, pilots can tell you way more than I know, but this is what I've taken, okay? Don't, Don't call me a pro on this. But nowadays, planes don't just have autopilot features on them like they actually have this sophisticated automated system, it's called like a fly-by-wire system. And it's not just that the pilots can say like, I wanna go here at this speed and this altitude, but now the the computers in these planes can actually interpret what the pilot wants to do and then execute whatever maneuver the pilot wants to do with perfection, like the most safe and the most smooth way possible. And so the pilots have become very used to flying these systems and in this specific case, When all those systems shut off, it actually put the plane in a stall where the nose was up, and they couldn't interpret the data, like they didn't, it was a rookie pilot, didn't necessarily know what was going on, and it was, in fact, the last 40 seconds of the flight is where the pilot actually figured out that they were gonna crash. Like, had no idea up until that point. Knew that something was off, didn't know how to correct it, had the nose up and was stalling the plane the whole time, and in the last 40 seconds realized, we're going to crash. And then it hit the water, killed 228 people. So all that to say, um, who wants to go on a flight tomorrow? You know, like, uh, thanks. You know, you're like Peter, Kirk. I appreciate that. Get out of the boat. Um, So all that to say, you have this situation where the system was designed to actually bring some, make something more safe, but it didn't actually do that. And so there's this excerpt from an article that was written by a former pilot about this specific situation and he said this he said for however much automation has helped the airline passenger by increasing safety it has had some negative consequences in this case it's quite clear that these pilots had had experience stripped away from them for years the captain of the air force flight had logged 346 hours of flying over the preceding six months but within those six months there were only about four hours in which he was actually in control of the airplane just the takeoffs and landings if you look at our life, I mean, I'm, I'm reading this one story thinking, look around at our society and see how many things are being automated for us. Like, at what point does the human brain not have to think on its own anymore because something's thinking on our behalf? And then what if those things that we assume are actually thinking for us shut down and we don't remember what it was like to actually do those things ourselves? What happens? And so the the desire in putting this whole system together for these planes was to lower the risk because most airplane crashes happen as a result of human error. And so you lower the risk by taking the control from the human and putting it into a computer that can do everything perfectly. But the problem is, is that the thing that they lost sight of is that the pilot actually needs to be in the practice of flying the planes themselves. And so what we see in this passage this morning is that we've been given immense peace. We've been given immense comfort from Jesus. Um, We've been given this lack of fear even by Jesus. And so when we come to faith in Jesus, all of these things are ours in Christ. Peace, comfort, uh, 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 removing fear, like all of these things are in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we are to live life on autopilot. As I think about this, I think about like how many of us in this room this morning are in autopilot in our lives, just going through the motions and doing things, but not even really in control or doing things as we are supposed to, as the Lord actually called and equipped you to do here, here right now in 2021. And so we need to be a people that are in practice of stepping out of the boat in faith, not just because it's good for us, but because it actually honors Jesus. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more comfort I want. The older I get, the more I talk about the days I took steps of faith. I was like, oh, I remember when I used to do those stupid things and just like do what the Lord said (laughs) and just trust that he was going to meet me in that place. And the older we get, the more we like safety. We like comfort. We like to minimize risk in our life. And so what you're going to see in this text this morning, again, is that we've been given immense peace, we've been given comfort, we've been given a lack of fear by Jesus, but it's not so we can coast on autopilot. There's a reason he's equipped you as he has in order to take the steps that he's called you to take. And so in this passage this morning, you're going to see two commands from Jesus that will sort of guard our whole time this morning. The first he says really clearly, Jesus says, don't be afraid. And then the second, he says, is he invites Peter out of the boat to walk on water, and that's this, take a risk, like get out of the boat. And so with those two things in mind, let's look at this passage and see what Jesus has to say. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a second. He retreats to the mountain. He's probably standing up there just like, oh man, just like watching these dudes, right? Like, look at this storm. And, And like Jesus is up on the mountain praying. Jesus knows exactly what's going on with these guys. Says, when evening came, he's there all alone. The boat's being, uh, uh, is way offshore. It's beaten by the waves, the wind's against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, it says, which is about 3 a.m., Jesus comes walking to them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. What an awesome statement. That they're acknowledging, like, truly, this is the Son of God. The first thing that I said that we're going to see in this command from Jesus is this command to not be afraid. And so what I want us to think about, um, though, is the situation itself. Because it's interesting. Because it doesn't seem like the disciples are that scared at this point from the beginning. Jesus comes to them, he says, don't be afraid. Like, they're definitely terrified, but at the beginning, it doesn't seem like they're that scared. So what's the context? Jesus fed 5,000 and more, and now the crowds are getting excited uh, about this miracle that he did, and they just wanna make Jesus king. They just want him to be king because of everything they've seen him do. And so you, you just, so to just kind of chill out the situation a little bit, Jesus sends the disciples across the water, and then Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray which Jesus is in the habit of doing. And it starts to get late, it gets to around 3 a.m. They've been on the water for a while. Jesus has been up praying for a while. So, uh, but if you notice, the disciples at this point, they aren't really scared. They're in the boat, The, the waves are crashing, like the storm is raging, but they're not super scared at this point. They're straining, the wind is against them. They're definitely tired, but these are fishermen. And so it's not like the situation we had back in Matthew chapter eight, right? If you remember all the way back in eight, there's a storm, the waves are crashing, the wind's blowing, they come to Jesus, he's in the boat, he's sleeping, they wake Jesus up and what do they say? We're gonna die. Like we're perishing, we're going down. Like are you gonna do anything about this? We're gonna die, you need to do something. And so there's this intense sense of fear in them back in this original story. But in this passage, it doesn't seem like there's fear in them as a result from the storm. They're exhausted, but not terrified. They're definitely, again, until when do they, get, do they get fearful? Do they get terrified? When Jesus shows up. The minute they see Jesus walking on the water, it's like, oh my gosh. And then all of a sudden they're terrified and it's Jesus and he approaches them and it freaks them out. And so if you look at verse 25, it says, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, what? It's a ghost, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. That word ghost, we automatically associate with like Peter Venkman and Ghostbusters, don't we? Like we have this idea of what ghosts are in our mind based off of what Hollywood has told us. But in the Greek, this word ghost literally just means an apparition. Like it means that something supernaturally is being revealed to them. And I I want you to get this. And so they, they, they would have immediately associated what they saw with God himself. There's something going on that is supernatural that they can't explain, and that freaks them out, because who else in their minds would have the power to come to them and walk on water like that except for God himself? In the Gospel of, uh, of Mark, in his account of the story, you see really clearly that, that Jesus intends for them to see Jesus to see his divine nature, to see that he is the son of God. I mean, we heard at the end of this, they acknowledge him as the son of God. This is really Jesus's point, to make himself known to them. That's what he's wanting to show them. And so in Mark six, he says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And then it says this in Mark, he meant to pass by them. So think about that. He meant to pass by them. So that, that phrase, it doesn't mean that Jesus literally was like, hey, what's up guys? Like, just walk by them. It didn't mean that Jesus is ignoring them, that he's just gonna literally pass by them. But it's potentially a reference to the Old Testament because where do we see this written prior? Remember when God puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he allows him to see his glory as he what? Passed by. God passed by. And so it's the same thing happening here. Jesus is giving them a glimpse of who he is as the son of God. And so the question is, why did he do it that way? Like, why didn't he just meet them on the other side of the land? Why didn't he walk on water behind them and then just jump into the boat and be like, whoa, what's up guys, where did you come from? Oh, I just walked on water. Why did Jesus orchestrate this whole thing the way that he did? because it seems as though he's orchestrating things after this long day, this long night, so that the disciples themselves would be terrified. And it kind of seems like he's adding to their trials. It reminds me of times when, um, this will let you into the immaturity in the Lori household on my behalf. I love to hide from my family. Like, sometimes I'll get behind the bathroom door and I'll just like stand at the crack in the door and I'll just wait for them to come out, you know? And the minute the door opens, I'm like, whoa you know and it's like what like freak him out and I I love to mess with my family but what's the first thing that somebody says oftentimes when we scare somebody that much what Ah, yeah Yeah, they're they're like oh my gosh and then what's the first thing that we say back to them most it's just me like we want to give them reassurance like it's just me in case you didn't know it's your dad (laughs) Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, why would you do that? I mean, it's your dad. It's all good. You can trust me. Well, I couldn't, you know, 30 seconds ago, you just messed with me. But, but the interesting part about this story is that the, the fear that they had was there because of Jesus. This is the weirdest part about it, because because of the way Jesus approached them, it actually got them fearful. And it was clearly Jesus' desire that they come to a place where they're terrified, where they can't explain what they see. I mean, he sends them in a boat to go across the lake. He knew exactly what he was doing. So why in the world would Jesus do this? Partially, it's because he's revealing himself to them. Like, he wants them to understand who he is, that he's not just a man He's not just a prophet. He's not just a guy that heals people. He's not just a good teacher, but he's actually God. He's the God man. And so he wanted them to see his divine nature. But I also think this passage reminds us that there are often, um, that we're often afraid in our own lives about the wrong things. That There are many things going on in your lives right now. In this room, many of you are facing things in the back of your minds right now that you are extremely fearful of whatever that is real life stuff illness relational conflict loss of job changing economy there's all these things that in the back of our mind are running through our minds and they're causing fear in us and many things that in our lives like we have this genuine fear of and rightfully so but it's always there with us and something we would say that that's maybe bigger in our life than anything else that we've devoted a ton of time to because we're so afraid of it. But it's interesting that for Jesus, he he says actually that all of those things in your life are no reason to fear. The waves crashing, the fact that you're tired, that none of those things are the reason to fear because there's only one thing that we as humans should fear. Right? As a human being, the thing that you should fear as a sinner is to come into the presence of God. What a crazy thing. To be able to come into the presence of God knowing how far off you are. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Are not, is not one of them uh, for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even if the hairs, uh, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore you are of more value than the sparrows. So Jesus is saying there are many things on this earth that you are going to be fearful of. But that's actually no reason to fear because the reason to fear is that there's this God who is holy, there's a God who is blameless, and the reality is that we are not. We are not holy, we are not blameless. We need that God who's holy and blameless to actually make us right. And and so here's the situation. Jesus has orchestrated all these things so that the disciples get a glimpse of his divinity, the fact that he is God, not just a man, he's God. And so they feel this terror that comes with being in the presence of God. But then they also feel the extreme comfort that comes from being in the presence of God later on this passage. And he says in verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying what? Take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. And I think this is such an amazing picture of the gospel, sort of like a mini picture of what the gospel is for you and I. Because prior to knowing Jesus, you guys have heard this analogy, we are like criminals coming into a courtroom because we're guilty, we're we're guilty of our sin. And so anybody, I won't ask for hands, been arrested lately, gone to court lately, been pulled over lately, like whatever it is, you get pulled over and there's fear in you, right? Because what you know is that I did something wrong. And then the cop says, "Um, do you know why I pulled you over? And what do we always say? Who knows, you know, like, you tell me, you know, you're the one that pulled me over. Like, but the reality is instantaneously, there's a fear in us. Because we are like a criminal coming into a courtroom. We're guilty of our sin. And there's fear there, and there actually should be fear there for us. The purpose of a good judge is to actually bring about justice. That's part of God's nature. That's part of the hope that you and I have, that he will accomplish what he said he will accomplish, that all evil will be dealt with because he's a good God and because he's a good judge. But as criminals, prior to Jesus, as as sinners, Coming into his presence should bring some sort of fear into us. In fact, that's what you see all throughout the Bible. Whenever anybody comes into the presence of God, they're fearful. Look all throughout scripture. Anytime anybody comes into the presence of God, it's like, whoa, what's this? Or an angel shows up to speak to somebody, and what do they say? Things like, don't be afraid. Like, I bring good news of great joy. They say things like, fear not. Like, they always have to tell people, don't worry, don't worry, don't fear. So why is everybody always afraid when they encounter God in the Bible every single time? Because they know what it means to come into the presence of God and to have a heart that is stained by sin. But the good news that Jesus is giving them is this glimpse of, that Jesus is actually going to make a way out that you don't have to stay in that forever so so that we can come boldly into the presence of God that we don't have to fear anymore. All the things that we once feared, we don't have to fear because we come boldly into the presence of God. So in the kind words of Jesus, Jesus says, take heart, don't be afraid. What does he mean by that? Take heart, like in Jesus, even though you have reason to be terrified don't be afraid because it's me and because i'm here and so for those of us who know jesus you know this comfort you know what i'm talking about you're reminded of it in first john four by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world there is no fear in love but perfect love does what cast out fear It casts it out. Like there's no room for it. And that's what's going on. Jesus is speaking to the disciples and when he says, don't be afraid, Jesus is not talking about the waves. Jesus is not talking about the wind and their fatigue. He's saying you can have comfort and peace in the presence of God. So take heart. This should erase every other fear that you have. I I know that we still struggle with fear. And if you're here this morning and you don't really know Jesus and you know that there are fears in your life and you're thinking like, man, these Christians, they always talk about how they're never afraid of anything. And it doesn't seem to be real. The reality is it's not. Anybody in this room not fear in the last week? Like we still have them. But the amazing part of the story is that even in my craziest fears, I'm attached to hope somewhere else. There's a hope beyond the fear that I'm feeling. We have this reality that as we look to passages like this, we can be reminded that at the end of the day, you have a peace and a comfort that surpasses this life that actually goes into the next. That's the grace of the gospel. And so when it comes down to it on the day of judgment, we don't look at ourselves for hope, do we? We don't stand before God and be like, oh, I did a lot of good things, like hope I make it. We stand before God and we go, God, it's because of what you did through your son, Jesus, that I gain entrance into eternity, into heaven. His perfect love has cast out those fears. And because he has, um, the the mistake that, that we make is honestly, as Christians sometimes, is the reality of this blessing of the peace and the comfort of our lives. Because so often, that's what we seek. We see it and we're thankful for it, but then when it means that we're supposed to pursue a life of peace and comfort, like that's not where you're supposed to land. But yet so much of our life as Christians is spent doing what? Give me comfort, Lord, give me peace. Like we just constantly are seeking him for comfort and peace, but we don't land there because it's not necessarily true. Do all of you have comfort and peace this morning? 100% in your life? No. But when you think of Jesus, where does your comfort and your peace actually come from? Him. Because I can't make sense of the wind and the waves in my life. Jesus has good work for us to do. In fact, in this passage, you're gonna see him invite Peter out of the boat to take this risk. And so the first thing we saw was uh, was Jesus, this theme of Jesus saying, don't be afraid. But the second, he says, take a risk. Look at Matthew 14, 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, he walked on water, and he came to Jesus. Now, if you know the disciples and you know of Peter, this isn't out of the ordinary for Peter, right? Peter's the kind of guy who's like all in before he knows exactly what he's even into, right? He's just all in, in every situation. But I honestly wonder what it was like to live with Peter, I wonder what it was like for the other disciples to sit in the boat and to watch this whole thing take place. Like take Bartholomew, for instance. He's another disciple. He's in the boat. What's it like for him to watch what's taking place? Because he always sees Peter doing these crazy things. Like he always sees sees Peter taking this massive step and just kind of risking it all and going for it and not thinking about it. I have to imagine the disciples are sitting in the boat like, Peter, come on, dude, like, you got nothing to prove. Like, we've been up all day, we're tired, the storm's brewing, and now you're asking this ghost to tell you to come out of the boat, like, you got nothing to prove, man. But notice that it's not the reaction that Jesus has with Peter. When Peter says, invite me out of the boat, Jesus says, okay, and Jesus commands him out. Like, I have to ask the the weird question, Peter didn't ask to come out of the boat, would Jesus still have called him out? (laughs) Like, Peter asked for it. He said, command me to come out of the boat. Jesus commands him to come out of the boat, and Peter listens and jumps out. He takes the risk. But I often wonder, like, why does Jesus do that? Why, after this long day, does Jesus... Play it out like this. And I think it's because for Jesus, it was this teaching opportunity with his disciples. You see Jesus with this opportunity to teach everyone what it means to take this risk, to step out in faith, because the truth is that when we take risks, we actually get to know Jesus better. When I look back on my life, if I was to give you a highlight reel of my life, I would tell you stories of when God showed up, when we took major steps of faith, and we didn't know if he was going to do it, and we just bet the farm, cashed the check, and went for it. And Jesus showed up. And I would sit and tell you those stories left and right because those stories drew me near to Jesus. Those stories taught me to follow him. Like you better believe that witnessing this with their own eyes did something in the disciples to cause them to believe even greater that Jesus could do and was who he said he was. And so through this whole experience, they actually get to know Jesus better. And that's what he wants for each one of us all the time. He wants us to know him. And here's what we see what happens when we step out in faith and when we take a risk. Because you might say, it didn't go that well for Peter, right? The dude got out of the boat, Peter sank, Jesus actually rebukes him, and that's true. He did say to Peter, oh, you have little faith. But it's sort of this gentle rebuke. And if he's calling Peter one of little faith, here's the question, what does it say about the rest of the disciples sitting in the boat? If, if he's like, you have little faith, and then you're one of the handful sitting in the boat, and you're like, uh, <laughs> does that mean I got none? You know, like, what about me, Jesus? Some of us, we literally live our whole lives this way. We live our whole lives safe. We try to guard ourselves from everything that's risky because we want life always to move up and to the right. That is, that's the trajectory that we're on in America. It always has to go up and to the right. If any of you have traveled to 80% of the world, go to India and preach that sermon. Because people will be like, oh, actually, gave up everything to follow Jesus, and I actually have nothing. And there isn't even the goal to go up into the right because we we don't live like that. Like that message doesn't preach in developing nations. But yet in America, this is the one we tee off on, right? God wants to bless you. He wants to give you comfort and peace. And so you spend your life searching for comfort, searching for peace watching the trajectory go up and to the right. And if it doesn't go up and to the right, then it's not God, and you have to change trajectory in your life because God would never ask you to do something that drained your bank account. But some of us live our lives this way. Many of us have heard Jesus say, don't be afraid. And then we praise God for that, like we have no reason to fear, but we forget that Jesus also sometimes, maybe more often than not, says, yeah, come out of the boat, take a risk, and put yourself in a place where you have to trust me. And I think in our walk with the Lord, we sometimes mistake the peace that we're given as the goal, honestly. Peace is the goal, so I search peace. Jesus is the goal, you search Jesus. You follow his lead. So imagine that there's a guy, um, wanting to be a fireman. And so he goes through training, goes through fire school, like first day of orientation, he shows up at the fire station and they begin to walk him around. They start showing him all the equipment that they use when they fight fires. So they're showing him like, oh, here's the coat, here's the hat, like here's the visor, here's the oxygen tank. Like we've got all these things that we use when we go fight fires. And then outside of the fire station, there's a fire truck and this fire truck has thousands of gallons of water in it. And the guy, At the end of the orientation, they say, well, are you ready to sign up? And the guy goes, "Um, I want to be the guy that sits in the truck. I don't want to be the guy that has to wear all that safety equipment and walk into the fire. And then I want you to think about what it might be for the people that are standing around that already work as firemen to sit there and go, we've literally given our life to this because we trust that the safety equipment that we're given has actually equipped us to go into the fire to help the people that we've been asked to help. And then I want you to look at our own lives and think how often do we just desire to go sit in the fire truck, the easiest place possible. Like God did not give you his comfort and peace and his lack of, like the ability to extinguish fear so that you could sit in the safest place possible and never have to actually take a step. He actually gave you all of those things as equipment to go into the battle to fight the fight that he's called us to fight. To risk it all for Jesus because you know that his comfort and his peace is in place even when I walk through the gnarliest of fires. So what about us? Because we're constantly lowering the risk to make it easier without thinking about what God has actually given us to take the risk ahead. So that we can put ourselves in a place where we're at risk because there's a job to be done. That's our walk with Jesus. Jesus has saved us. He's given us eternal life. He's given us the resources right now. He gives us life and life eternal so that we would be free to risk our life for the sake of the kingdom. He gives us comfort so that we would be free and willing to put ourselves in situations which are not very comfortable. He he gives us security so that we would be willing and able and eager to take risks for the sake of others and to honor him. I mean, this is the nature of the kingdom of God. This is the upside down kingdom that doesn't make sense that we've been talking about for a year. This is what Jesus also has been trying to teach his disciples since Matthew 10, when he said, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it clearly. Jesus has not given us new life to be prudent with it. That's not the point. Just like it's not the point that the automated systems in the plane are there and you just back up on those. So the pilots don't have to necessarily learn how to fly or remember the things they were once taught. They're they're there to increase safety, but the pilots still need to know how to fly. We still need to know how to walk in faith. And that's what God is calling us to. Man. If I can't, I can't rail on this enough because I feel it myself because there have been seasons in my own life where I've been willing to risk it all and follow Jesus. And there are days when I sit back, like even I had a situation this last week where I literally walked by somebody when I knew that the Lord told me to stop, and I just went. I went because it was the easy route, because I had a destination to get to, I had things to get done, and I didn't stop to take the time to actually talk to the person that's literally sitting there on the sidewalk next to me as I walk by and I'm like, the Lord's telling me to stop. And I'm like, I got too much stuff to do, man. Like, I just gotta keep going. That's gonna take too much time and it's gonna make me late for this. And so in my mind, I'm playing all these games when the Lord just says stop. And I'm wondering like in our lives, what are the things that God is asking you to stop for right now? I'm gonna read the rest of this and I have three points I wanna make and then we'll be done. I'll invite the worship team to come up. But there's three things I want you to see in the rest of this text. So verse 30 to 33. Read that with me. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, "Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, The wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Three things I want to leave with you. First one is this. We're actually to follow the lead of Jesus. If you notice in this passage, who does Peter follow out of the water? Jesus, he's out there already. Peter just didn't decide one day, you know what? Next time we're out and about, storm brews, we're out in the middle of the water, I think I'm just gonna give this a shot. But Jesus is out there. He actually asked to get out to come see him. And Jesus has come. Peter gets out of the boat. Second, is it at some point in your life, you're gonna have to be a person that is willing to ask for help. Because when his faith wavers, Peter starts to sink and he cries out what? Lord, save me. What did Peter have to believe about Jesus in order to trust that when he cried that out, Jesus would actually rescue him? He would have had to believe that Jesus would actually do it that he was who he said he was. That Jesus was glad to reach out and save Peter. We as a people need to be people that are willing to be to ask for help. And the interesting thing is that asking for help in our life is not often easy for us. And when you live life on autopilot, you don't get to the place in your life where you ever ask for help. That's the bummer. If you live life in Coast, you essentially try to create the most safe place ever so that you don't need anybody's help for anything, which means you don't, if you don't ask it from anybody else, you definitely don't ask it from the Lord himself. And the third thing that I want you to see is this, is that at the end of this, they go to Genesaret, and then Jesus, they start bringing droves of people to Jesus, and Jesus is healing them. I'm like, what a cool visual. And I think for us to remember that Jesus's ministry continued on from here. Jesus goes and he continues to heal, he has this power to heal. Um, Jesus is the person that people are looking to and people are following after him. But what's not said here that I wanna just kind of share with you that we know is that Peter just failed miserably in the water. You have a little faith, he doubted and he fell. We know that Peter stayed with Jesus for the long haul, didn't he? Even despite his failures and his slip-ups and his doubts and his fear, he continued to walk the road with Jesus. He persevered through the failure. failure. He probably was tempted numerous times after that, and he stayed the course with Jesus. And so for us, those of us here in this room who consider ourselves disciples of Jesus, my hope is that there's some sort of stirring in your heart and that you're led to ask, some questions this morning about your own life. And so I'm not saying tomorrow everybody needs to buy some suitcases, figure out where they're gonna go and we're all ditching town and we're moving overseas someplace because that's the big step. But what I am saying is this, it may not be the big step, but it could be a small one. I literally passed up a person on the sidewalk last week. What was yours? What's the small one? a small little step of faith that you haven't been willing to take. And as I just prayed for this morning, I just felt like the Lord like impressed it upon my heart that there's literally people in this room who know that there's something that God's been asking them to do for a long time and you've continued to resist and resist because the risk seems too high and you're too concerned about your wife, your life moving up into the right maybe this morning Jesus is calling you out of the boat. Maybe it's in a major significant way. Maybe it's in a very small way. But regardless of the fact, he's calling us out. Like to trust him. To take the peace and the comfort he offers us to go walk on the water, not to sit back in the fire truck and just watch everybody else do the work, but to be the one that's engaged in it. So as I look around this morning, as you look around this morning, as you see the way that you're living, that there are some areas that maybe you don't even realize that in your life, but you've actually begin to click it on autopilot and you've just hit cruise? Are there areas in your life that you're not putting yourself in a position to actually trust Jesus? And could it be this morning, very simply, that God's leading you to some of those opportunities today? I have no idea what those are, but I'm praying that Jesus makes them known to you. Would you guys stand with me? As we close every week in worship, there's this reminder for us that we worship in the response to what Jesus is doing, to what he said. It's his word. And as we read this this morning, I just can't help but think like there's probably a lot of us in this room that have hit autopilot. Maybe Jesus is stirring in your heart and I have no idea what that looks like, but here's an opportunity for you as we sing, as we worship him this morning to say, Jesus, help me reset. Jesus, help me point my eyes, my heart, my affections towards you. Help me to get my eyes off of the stuff going on around me, like the things I'm fearing that I shouldn't fear when I should be fearing you. How do we reorient our lives this morning in such a way that we don't become the people that literally walk by all the problems without being the ones that would stop and address them? He's calling you, big and small, He's calling you. I love like the fact that Colin and Madeline are literally leaving their life behind to follow in obedience what God's asked them to do. Some of our other missionaries have done the same, some people in this room Literally feel the call of God to place themselves in the business world to be used by God, and some of them will pay a massive price to stay put in the world that God's called them to, in order to be the light that He's asked them to be where they're at. Whatever it is, whatever, wherever out on the spectrum, the one thing you can't take away from this is that you aren't called to anything, and that you should just minimize the risk in your life and try to stay as comfortable as possible. That's not the life He's called us to. I pray for you. Would you bow your heads? Jesus, I thank you for your church, um, these people. I thank you, uh, Lord, for the work that you've done in our lives. Lord, as we even read this story this morning, I'm reminded, uh, God, that there was a season of my life when I did not know you. And I chose, Jesus, to devote my life to you. And what a good reminder this morning is 20-some years later, I still choose to follow you with my life and devote it all to you. And I pray, Jesus, for each individual in this room that our hearts would be stirred up. Jesus, that we would desire to know you better, to walk with you more closely, God, to be led into sometimes crazy uh, venues, crazy things in life, and take risks that maybe nobody else will in order to walk in obedience to what the Lord's asking us to do. And for some of us in this room, we'll lose everything for it. And for some of us in this room, the reality is we'll gain everything for it. And it just doesn't make sense. But at the end of the day, Lord, our our only responsibility is to walk in obedience to you. And so I pray, God, your spirit would move in the hearts of your people. I pray as we leave these doors this afternoon, that there'd be something, a fire ignited within us, God, that would not allow us to just become complacent, comfortable, Christians who don't think that they're called out of the boat, they just sit back and watch everybody else take those steps, but in some form or fashion, you're calling all of us, and so I pray, Jesus, by your spirit, we'd be empowered to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.